Welcome to From City to the World. I'm your host, Vince Boudreaux, the president of the City College of New York. From City to the World is a show about how the work we're doing at City College matters to people across the city and throughout the world. So we'll be discussing the practical applications of our research in solving real-world issues like poverty, homelessness, and social economic disparities of all kinds. Now today, we're going to be discussing the CUNY School of Medicine here at City College, and I'm really excited to have our new dean of that school, Dr. Carmen Renee Green, with us on the show. So let me first tell you a little bit about the CUNY School of Medicine, and then I'll give you some background on, uh, on Dr. Green. The CUNY School of Medicine is located here at City College of New York, and it's a partnership with St. Barnabas Hospital in the Bronx. The school is an expansion of City College's Sophie Davis School of Biomedical Education, and that school was founded in 1973. CUNY School of Medicine offers one of the oldest physician assistant programs in the United States. It's the only school in the country that has eliminated the MCAT as a barrier to access to medical careers and offers medical education to undergraduate uh, in the undergraduate curriculum. It's also the only public medical school in Manhattan, and it's known for producing excellent and diverse professionals who are leaders in providing quality healthcare. I'll say City College has been um, deeply proud of our tradition in medical education. Um, it's a long tradition. Now, Dr. Green is a fellow of New York Academy of Medicine, and she joins us from the Academic Medical Center at the University of Michigan, which is one of the world's premier research universities. Um, she's tenured at University of Michigan as a pain medicine physician and anesthetologist. Um, she provided care for patients in Michigan's medicine's back and pain center and is considered to be one of the top pain doctors in the country by U.S. News and World Reports. Her health policy research interests focus on pain, disparities, and the social determinants of health. Uh, she's an expert in minority and women's health, in aging, and diversity in academic medicine. She's also the director of the Healthier Black Elder Center at the NIH-funded Michigan Center for Urban uh, African-American Aging Research. Her published articles focus on the unequal burden of pain shouldered by minorities. She served on the advisory board, serves on the advisory board of the National Institute for Health, that's the NIH, uh, U.S. Secretary for Health and Human Services, and the American Cancer Society. She worked in the U.S. Senate on the Children and Families Subcommittee, where she was instrumental in developing the National Pain Care Policy Act, included in the Affordable Care Act, and passed by the U.S. Congress in 2010. She's a graduate of University of Michigan's Flint and Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. She's a member of Alpha Omega Alpha National Medical Honor Society. And in addition to serving as Dean of the CUNY School of Medicine, Dr. Green will also be the Anna and Irving Brodsky Medical Professor and Professor in CCNY's Colin Powell School for Civic and Global Leadership. Dr. Green, that was a mouthful, but welcome to From City to the World. Thank you. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. That introduction means that you must have been, you must be channeling my mother. Uh, you know what? I um, I, I uh, uh, contacted everyone in your family before we uh, before we did that introduction, and they said um, they said not to miss a thing. And of course, as you know, I edited drastically so that we could fit in your resume before the show was over. Um, we're so happy to have you on the show today and um, at the CUNY School of Medicine here at City College. So let's talk about um, what what brought you here. You're, as I said in the intro, you were in the early, early days of your, what we hope will be a long deanship. What was it that, that brought you from the University of Michigan to the City College of New York? Well, I must say, you, you had me at hello. <laughs> um, when the search firm contacted me and I saw the job description, um, it really felt mission-driven. Um, it was consistent with the work that I care about, uh, the work that I've done in the past, and where I think healthcare should be going in the future. So let me tell you a little bit about that. Um, I fundamentally believe that healthcare is broken, but it's not irrevocable. Um, we're in a time in which we need healers and leaders to heal this country's um, wounds um, in the healthcare and the social care, hence the joint appointment with uh, my friends at the Colin Powell School. 
I believe that we will do this through a new generation of um, doctors or what I call, you know, people that we are enamored with, our emerging healers and leaders. And so um, I was telling people that this is the best dean job in the country. Um, this is the CUNY School of Medicine is the most important medical school in the state and a national treasure. So I thank you for asking me to participate today because one of the things that's been a challenge is that we haven't told our story well enough about what we're doing, what we're creating, and how we are making a difference for New York State and beyond. So you have me at hello. Well, could we talk a little bit about about what you see as... I mean, you you and I in conversation, you've, you've brought up the phrase population health, and I know that's a big part of, of what you think makes this school uh, different. But, but could, you, could you lay out a little bit of, of, you know, what your vision is for this school, you know, whether it's around population health or, or, or other things that, that, that interest you? Yeah. Well, first and foremost, um, most medical schools, and none that I can actually identify right now, has eliminated disparities in their own community. In fact, U.S. News and World Reports doesn't even rank medical schools on their ability to eliminate disparities. While we live in spaces within academic medicine and within higher education where in some places, in some of our great medical schools and uh, hospitals, there are people who are without homes, mm -hmm. there are people without health insurance. Um, and the question, the fundamental question is, are we making our communities healthier? So at the individual level, at the community level, and at the population level. So going back to you had me at hello is I believe that this medical school can make a difference. That we can start to begin, start the process of healing healthcare by healing those in and amongst ourselves. Harlem, the five boroughs. We are uniquely poised to do so. Our students, you know, there are lots of public universities out there. Um, I come from two great ones, Michigan State um, University, which is the first land-grant university, um, the University of Michigan. Um, but there are very few that are really based in the city um, that are based within a community. And this medical school is based within Harlem. Mm -hmm. I believe that... Um, because our students come from the community, they understand the social determinants of health, where people work, live, play, and pray, and how that influences their everyday lives, the lives of the community, how it influences health and health care. And so those are so the underpinnings um, that we move forward with. You know, many people, as I was looking at this position, you know, they told me about Jack Geiger, and I think of this being the school in many ways in the departments that Jack Geiger built, who was one of the premier leaders and educators as it relates to the social determinants of health. Our students live it, they understand it in a fundamentally different way. Um, and so that's what moves us forward. So our vision, you know, for this medical school, our, our, our mission is really to unlock the potential of those young people who come from these communities so that they become a community of healers and leaders um, for the future. Um, within that is also having compassion and empathy uh, and potentially sympathy for those that they are going to be caring for and that we're going to do these things, create the healing across what I believe is the quadripartite mission. People talk about the tripartite mission, the three missions, education, clinical, and research. Well, 
I fundamentally believe that we need to be thinking about the quadripart type mission, the four prong, education, clinical, research, and the social mission. And that's where we're, we're going to be different, and that's where we're going to be start delivering. Could I ask you to, you know, a phrase you've used, and you talked about Jack Geiger, who, of course, was, was um, you know, one of the great stars of our medical tradition at City College. But in, in talking about him and in, in your own uh, uh, discussion, you, you bring up this phrase, the social determinants of health. And I want to just take a moment and unpack that a little bit and, 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 and talk about how social conditions uh, need to be incorporated into a medical tradition and what that looks like in terms of how we educate our students and, and, and educate our doctors? Well, place matters. Mm -hmm. it, you know, I think the clearest example that is relevant today is COVID. Mm -hmm. And we see a disproportionate burden of those people who live in who live in worlds where poverty exists, where they um, couldn't move around, they couldn't get, you know, the whole conversation of who gets a mask and what type of mask. Those types of things come into play. Um, so that's the relevant issue. But we also think about, you know, in your neighborhood, is are there grocery stores? How far do you have to work to walk to the grocery store? Is it is it easier to get something at one of the um, drive-through places? Well, you don't really drive through in New York City, but you understand mm -hmm. the places that give you burgers for a dollar and fries and a Coke. Right. Um, it's easier in some, for some people to do that um, than to go to a grocery store. Or the bananas are much more expensive than the hamburger. Mm -hmm. um, and so those are things that um, come into play. In the rest of the country, there are also really places where there are food deserts, um, where you cannot get to a grocery store easily, or the bus doesn't run there, or the groceries that are there are bumped and bruised. So those things play a major factor in how we think about health. We currently live in an obesogenic society. What does that mean? of a society that makes us not move as much as we should, that makes us um, eat calorie-laden foods that have no nutritional value. And we're all um, at risk for that. We now know, we know that, the, you know, the, what, how we practice medicine is based on some, um, the biology, the anatomy, uh, cellular, all those things, those basic sciences. Without, with that being said, that is the foundation of medicine. But we now know that 80% of health and well-being is based upon the social determinants: your race, your ethnicity, who you love, um, what language you speak, your education. All those things come into play. So we're trying to produce at the CUNY School of Medicine, physicians and PAs and scientists who understand this intrinsically. And not just sort of understand it, but actually try to do something about it and how it influences health and well-being. Let me give you a good example. Um, neighborhood socioeconomic status, you know, your education. People say, well, isn't this all about socioeconomic status? When we see these healthcare disparities, why disparities with people dying before their time, babies being before, being born before their time, mothers being um, dying in childbirth, right? Um, why is it that these people tend to be people of color? And even if they are higher income, it is not protective in comparison to Caucasians. We need to understand that. Is that just discrimination or racism? Mm -hmm. Okay. Or is it something deeper mm -hmm. about our society? We know that 80% of health is dependent upon the social determinants of health. Dr. Green, you talk about um, 
social determinants of pain. And as I said earlier, you um, come from a history of, you know, you you've been you directed the Healthier Black Elder Center. Um, you're also at the uh, National Institute for Health-funded Michigan Center for Urban African American Aging Research. And can you talk a little bit about um, you? You ended with a question. You know, is it just racism? Is it you know? Um, some of the social determinants of class transcend social economic categories. So uh, a wealthier African-American is likely to have some of the same social determinants as somebody who's, who's living closer to the poverty line. Can you talk a little bit about your experience at these two um, uh, research centers and, um, and what questions you've, you've kind of, um, or what answers you've, you've come up with to the questions that you raised? Great question. Um, the Michigan Center for Urban African American Aging Research um, and the Healthier Black Elders comes out of a, a space and place of the Program for Research on Black Americans. Mm-hmm. And my mentor was James Jackson, and I think you know him. Um, he is was the preeminent social mm-hmm. geologist and scholar and basically says, you know, black people um, being compared to white people at some level, I'm paraphrasing, of course, mm-hmm. um, was basically the whole conversation of a deficit model. And it didn't focus on the resilience of people of color. And James, when, you know, when he died recently, um, too soon, um, you know, has trained many, or mo- some would say most, of the African-American scholars or people who focus on health um, equity, health inequities um, throughout this generation. Mm-hmm. So I was really extremely, it was career changing in many ways, President Boudreaux, um, that they took me in. Mm-hmm. Um, this group of scholars, uh, a group of social scientists said, we're going to take this physician in. Um, and they taught me. I learned a great deal. Um, no one really at the medical school understood what I was trying to study in the context of health disparities as it related to pain. Um, the program for research in Black Americans they were devoted to developing, you know, scholars, and I brought, you know, some of my ideas about pain there. I started off as a pilot investigator and then grew into helping to develop uh, work with. Um, Robert Taylor and others as it relates to, um, you know, the investigator corps, and then working with Peter Lichtenberg uh, as a, at the Wayne State. So the centers, um, the Michigan Center uh, for Urban African American Aging Research was um, a joint program really for Michigan, and then also Wayne State is where the Healthier Black Elders work were located. So I um, had the opportunity to be um, the um, director for the Healthier Black Elder Center. Now, I'll tell you one thing. If you do not want feedback, you don't spend a lot of time with elders of color. (laughs) Um, And that's just truth. And my goodness, working with them on a community advisory board was so powerful because in many respects, they were telling, you know, so we have learned for a long time you go in you get the data you write the papers right and don't be surprised this is carmen speaking that people don't trust us right don't be surprised when people don't want to give or allow you to use their data because we were taking their data and not giving it back so the michigan center for urban african-american research was basically and the program for research, program for research of Black Americans, was doing things very differently at a very early time. And so the elders would actually have us. These are what we think are important questions. And you know, once a year, we would have a major reception where we would talk about the things that were important to them. Um, and you know, over a thousand people would come. Um, we had. Uh, learning sessions where 40 to 50 people would come every month. Um, At the end of the year session, um, you know, we would have a series of different organizations coming in to check uh, on 
blood pressure, um, diabetes. And we actually would find that people needed sometimes to go to the doctor right then and right there. Mm-hmm. Those are some of the things that I, I, I would like to see us at City College begin to do, being really responsive to the community and their needs. We can't do everything. We can't be everywhere. Um, but we can make our communities healthier. And so I would say that from our practice um, with the Michigan Center uh, for Urban African American Aging Research, we call it MUCWAR, mm-hmm. um, we um, wrote many, many papers. We developed lots of scholars uh, and, you know, extremely proud of that work. And by the way, Professor Boudreaux, I still have a rich connection with them because that's in many ways home. Mm-hmm. Um, they have um, rooted me on to this particular position. And the one thing about the program for research in Black Americans, you never really um, go away. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So how do you integrate, and, and what does it look like to integrate some of the lessons of that research into an instructional program for students here at the CUNY School of Medicine? Oh, great question. Um well, one, you start off by how do we learn to listen to the community? Mm-hmm. Not passively learn, but actively learn um, from from them, with them. What are the questions that are important? Um, that's one, first and foremost. So that's one of the things that we're going to be doing. But I'll give you a good example. Um, some of the programs that we developed there, um, we can also develop. Um, here at City College and also across um, Harlem. For instance, we were able to get funding for a summer immersion for science teachers. Mm -hmm. Um, We'll need to have students who can potentially help um, with some of the new knowledge as it relates to health um, inequities and how we might work on them together. How do we teach, how do we have science teachers come in, infuse their curriculum with information that is, you know, contested, evidence-based, um, that influences health behaviors that make people healthier. Um, how do we incorporate that with all the other disciplines? You know, we talk about health, but health, um, you know, you can't have health without also having social health. So those are things that we will be doing. Teaching students how to um, you know, we've got young people, our brains of our students, when they start here, they start here in high school, right? From, they come from high school into um, the curriculum that will, seven years later, without the MCAT, make them doctors. But we also, because they are young, we also have to think about how we um, teach them to start thinking about science. And even um, the most junior person in our curriculum could be involved in science, um, asking or answering scientific questions, such as using photo voice. And that's a, um, a technique in which you have people take pictures uh, of the, the place, places and spaces that they live in, um, and also using that to sort of use it to understand health um, and educational disparities through a different lens, and that's through the camera's lens. What 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 might a, a physician get from those from those pictures? I and mean, what are the sorts of things that she might be interested in extracting when a patient comes in with a, with a stack of photographs of, of of their home or their neighborhood? Yeah. So it might tell you that you know the lights go out often. Mm-hmm. It might tell you, um, wow, there's no grocery stores there. It might tell you that you're having problems um, with your rent, right? How do we think about health in a fundamentally different way? Mm-hmm. Um, that health is not just about the prescription of you've got diabetes and here's your um, prescription for insulin. Mm-hmm. What's underneath that? Mm-hmm. Can you walk in your neighborhood safely? Yeah. And if you can't, how do we create safe places for people to do so? Mm-hmm. Um, so we know that if people drop some weight, we know that if people eat a more healthy, balanced diet, 
we can actually reverse some of the trends of diabetes. And, you know, diabetes rarely runs alone. It runs along with, you know, heart, cardiac disease, kidney, right. heart disease, and, and kidney disease. So to the extent that we can start doing some of that, we start reversing some of these diseases that are taking tens of, sometimes 20 years off of people's um, lives and certainly impacting their quality of life. Mm-hmm. You know, health conditions we can reverse. Yeah. I mean, some of what you've just uh, mentioned, you know, o- obesity, diabetes, diet, um, in in pretty clear ways, uh, medicine has tr- has connected those preconditions to, 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 to bad health outcomes. But I wonder, it was so much of what you also were suggesting points us in the direction of factors like stress and anxiety and trauma and the transmission of trauma intergenerationally or across a community. And I, I wonder if, if you could talk a little bit about, because those, those feel to me like the more kind of invisible social determinants, and and it, how important are they? Yeah, well, there's reasons why um, some people don't trust doctors. Mm-hmm. Uh, one, we haven't listened carefully enough. We passively listen, or active, well, where we need to be actively listening, and the attitudes of healthcare professionals, the attitudes of patients. Um, the people who are seeking care may all influence how care is received um, or not received, for that matter. Mm-hmm. So these invisible things, we live in a society, and particularly now with COVID, um, there is the whole conversation that began for some people with George Floyd, but many people know that that conversation began many mm-hmm. generations. Um, how do we deal with some of these ills um, within our society that, you know, anxiety, the trauma. Um, we had a nice town hall yesterday that focused on wellness um, at, the, at the college, as you know. And there are biases, right, right? And in regards to who seeks mental health care. Well, you know... Why would you have someone help you understand things when they don't understand you or where you've come from? And so, again, that's where we at the city, uh, at the City University of New York School of Medicine are really trying to unpack some of those things. I'm excited that so many of our students now want to go into psychiatry. We're going to need them. There's a paucity of um of those in the mental health field who are um, knowledgeable um, or willing to listen to the stories or able to listen to the stories of people who don't exactly look like them. And I would add that, you know, one of the things that we now know is that living around stress, living within stress, is actually um, decreasing the size of some of our telomeres. That's fascinating. That means that it may, some of these things may be baked within our DNA. Mm-hmm. Um, and so how do we address that o- over time? And so these are really I- important um, questions that we need to to deal with. Um, but we also need to recognize if, you, <laughs> if you're not feeling well, um, that you actually may be per- perceiving something that the rest of the world or you may be early to the gate um, before the rest of the world, uh, something that may be um, really detrimental to our community. And I wonder if you could talk to us a little bit about, oh, a number of things about that. I mean, one one is, of course, you know, what was it in that act that you think was, was unique or novel? Um, you know, wh- how do we benefit from that act? But also... You know, so you're, you know, you're a physician from Michigan, and all of a sudden, you're in Washington working on, you know, a centerpiece of legislation of of Barack Obama, and I just wonder what what that was like for you. Maybe we start there, and and then tell us a little bit about the content of the act. Yeah. Well, thank you. Um, <laughs> you know, one of the beautiful things of being a full professor with tenure is that you get to go on sabbatical. Mm. 
And I remember when I talked to um, um, my dean at the time, Alan Lichter, and you know he had to approve. Uh, this is uh, my going to what is now called the National Academy of Medicine, but at that time was the Institute of Medicine, and working with the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation um, Health Policy Fellows, which is considered their premier um, health policy program. And so my dean, um, Alan, at the time, who's now, I would say, a really good friend, um, said, Carmen, I think you're going to go on sabbatical and actually really work harder than you did when you went there, when you left here. And that's unusual. And it, we did. Um, I, you know, packed up my um, little suitcase and went to live in uh, Washington, D.C., and learned a lot about health policy. My interest was not to work on pain, actually. My interest was to understand why, um, in many respects, that we could find illness all around us and it was much more difficult to find health. And what would be the levers to um, change health policy or healthcare policy um, such that we could improve the health and well-being of people? Now, certainly my interest had been in pain and pain care research, um, but it was really more of a global um, perspective that took me there. Mm -hmm. Well, the thing about it is one of the things that happens is that when you walk on to the Capitol steps, people start saying, hmm, well, guess who's here? Let's see. <laughs> and they mm -hmm. start thinking about what types of pieces of legislation. I was really very fortunate that there was a bill um, that focused on pain globally. And one had gone through the, the Congress as it related and became law as it related to our wounded warriors who were struggling, um, you know, disproportionately from wars that, um, you know, that have taken too many lives and taken too many limbs and caused way too much trauma. Yeah. Um, and then it comes to pain as it relates to, you know, the people who aren't in war, the, the grandmother. Um, you know, seeing people in my clinic who, you know, we finally get them better and then they didn't have access to medication. Mm -hmm. um, seeing people having diagnoses of cancer um, and their pain being discounted. So all those stories of my patients, and you know, I'm, that was really Vince, one of the hardest parts, as you know, uh, for me was to leave my patients that many of them I've had the opportunity and the honor to have taken care of for you know, over 20 years. Um, they were actually very happy when they knew that what I was coming to was to be the dean mm -hmm. um, um, here at um, Historic um, City College of New York, um, but it was their stories that I took with me, and so um, there was an interest in thinking about pain. And despite the fact that the interactions in the House and the Senate and between the Republicans and the Democrats could be problematic, we were able um, to create this piece of legislation, and we did it in a bicameral bipartisan approach. There was one thing that got people's attention, disparities, the word disparities. They couldn't imagine that people would get lesser quality pain care, members of Congress couldn't imagine, um, because of their race or their ethnicity or their gender. And so that simple word led to us um, really moving the needle. Um, and our language was such that um, on both sides, both the House and the Senate and the Republicans and the Democrats, we made certain the legislation was identical. So that when there was an opportunity for it to have a vote, it would go through. And that's really how it happened. And so when President Obama um, came in, um, legislation was already written and it moved. Um, it was part of the Affordable Care Act. Mm -hmm. And that piece of legislation has led to several different um, 
products. Um, one is a book from the Institute of Medicine that focused on pain and pain care disparities. That focused on pain. Uh, with that being said, despite the fact that the word disparities was in the legislation, only a small part of the book, the major um, book on uh, on pain and the report, um, focused on disparities. So we still need, um, there's work still to be done there. It led to a prevention strategy and number of different studies at the National Institutes of Health or to sort of understand um, where the research needs to go from the U.S. Secretary of Health and Human Services really sort of prioritize that. Um, that type of work that focused on pain. You know, I think we've talked about, uh, you know, pain costs people, you know, um, it, it costs this country more than cancer and diabetes um, and heart disease combined. So 100 million people are impacted by pain. As we know, one in three people will be impacted by cancer at some point in time during their life. And so it is taking, it's stealing. Pain is this thief in the night. It's stealing people's health, their, their quality of life. Um, it's, um, there's presenteeism where people are present at work and not really working because they've got a migraine. There are disability. All those things um, really come into play when we think about pain, and it's equal opportunity. So you or I um, could step off the curb um, funny and twist your ankle, break your ankle, and you could end up with a chronic pain problem. And so it's really incredibly important that you know and then as you think about pain it's a continuum um there's the acute pain which is usually post-operative or you know i fell i broke my ankle all the way to chronic pain which tends to last more than six months and then there's the the pain that is associated with cancer um, due to its treatment or um, the surgery falling of it and then you can also have um, chronic pain after having um, cancer, um, you know, the acute pain. So it really, pain has really been a thief in the night. And there's too, far too many people who live with it. Um, and we live in a society where it says you should suck it up, no pain, no gain. Well, in many respects, um, pain is a great equalizer. Now, we're not just like the football players who kind of bounce. Um, we, um, when you start having pain that persists, it starts stealing from you. And it's not just the young person, it's the grandmother who can't go to her grandkids' soccer game. Um, so that's the work that we've done. And I hope, I'm really hopeful um, that we will be able to um, bring some of that. And actually, I'm not going to be hopeful. We're going to be bringing pain um, to the uh, City College of New York um, as a fundamental thing that we'll be studying and certainly within our medical school. Far too many physicians, healthcare professionals know very little as it relates to pain. And we have this mindset that no pain, no gain, or you should just suck it up. And in actuality, one of the studies that we did um, that showed how the variability and how pain was treated in men and men and in women, meaning men receive better quality care, and certainly racial and ethnic minorities receive lesser quality care. Could, could could we talk about that? I mean, you you said a couple of times that pain is an equal opportunity uh, thief in the night, but but you know we've had on this show Linda Villarosa, who's talked a little bit about how pain is received, understood responded to in the medical profession. And I wonder if you could talk a little about that. Like what, what happens when different kinds of people say to a doctor, I'm in pain? What's, what's, what, what are the dangers, the, the, the pitfalls in the way we respond to those kinds of, of assertions? Well, I'm a great fan of Linda Villarosa and her work. And I think, so you've got two people who come into the emergency, well, I'll, let me, I'll give you an example. What got me started asking the questions? So you have, when I was a, a pain management fellow, we had these patients who would come in to say they have pain. 
and I watched, you know, a man, you know, handsome like yourself, Caucasian. I'm assuming you're Caucasian. I'm not quite certain we haven't had that conversation. Well, people don't even believe I'm handsome, probably. <laughs> I, I can vouch for that, that you are. Um, you come in with your shirt and your tie. Yeah. Right? And we automatically believe, we automatically believe you and your pain. Yeah. A woman of color, African-American woman comes in and she has to prove to you that she has pain. So whose voice do we hear? And it's that very, it's at the essence of the unequal burdens and unheard voices of people with pain. Mm -hmm. So I look at some of the studies in which you have a long bone fracture. Okay, those are the big bones in your body. They're broken. You come into the emergency room. You can see it on, t on the x-ray. Mm -hmm. The black person, the Hispanic person, receives, is less likely to have their pain assessed. Like on a 0 to 10 scale, what is your pain? The Caucasian person is more likely to have their pain assessed. And then even if it's assessed, we know what the pain score is. We know that the people of color and often women have their pain, their pain receives less treatment for the same type of fracture. And that's the crux of the issue, the variability in, uh, in decision making based upon the healthcare professional, how people present, the expectation. So we could go through a long conversation. I've started talking about this, and I guess some of this is online, um, in regards to the history of the undertreatment of pain as to whose pain story do we believe, right? And the whole perception that black and brown people don't have pain. Yeah. And that it's an insensitivity of their skin. And I would say to you, my friend, that we actually may need to go back and fundamentally reset the hypotheses that have driven the work of pain. Mm -hmm. And some of this goes back to 1619, right? Um, and some of even the conversation as it relates to Doctor's Day. Who was, who was deserving of getting um, anesthesia? J. Marion Sims. You know, his, his statue was uh, uh, in Central Park. It was recently taken down, I, I believe, mm -hmm. across from the New York Academy of Medicine. Considered the father of, of, um, of gynecology. But yet, <laughs> this is a person who, um, you know, experimented yeah. without the assent or consent on enslaved people, right? They weren't animals, they were enslaved people. And in very areas that were very sensitive, um, in the genital system, right? Um, using steel sutures. That, those type of techniques that he developed were taken to a Caucasian population who were often given you know, um, anesthesia for it, whereas these enslaved women did not receive the same. So there's a history behind some of this um, as to who is deserving of having pain, right? Um, even if you look at disabilities and the rating of disabilities, right? So two people, African-Americans, I look at the work of some, my friend, not, uh, not, not um, Tate, Ray Tate, and you know, the disability uh, ratings for people of color are less than that for Caucasians. Yet, if you look at their spine, uh, MRI, um, you see that there's no difference. So there's a lot of work to do, you guys. Does the ethnicity of the doctor or the nurse or the physician's assistant matter in that assessment? Great question. The numbers of of some of the doctors who are African American or health professionals who are African American nurses, physicians, um, PAs, 
um, is exceedingly low. It is not reflective of their representation in the population. We do believe that um, the complaints of people are heard differently when they are when there is uh, congruence, meaning the physician and the patient are the same race or ethnicity or gender. We also know that women tend to listen um, better and longer um, to um, patients mm -hmm. than compared to men physicians, male physicians. So all those things come into play, um, but we don't know some of this. I can tell you, and with a good example is that um, I had a colleague who broke uh, a surgeon, and once they broke um, their extremity, they got it as it relates to pain. Uh-huh. And so one of the things that we've shown in some of our studies um, is that um, <laughs> once a healthcare professional has experienced pain or has a close family member that they take care of pain, they treat it very differently. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So there is certainly a component of empathy. And uh -huh. so one of the things that we do need a more, I guess, society-wide is empathy, uh -huh. and certainly within the healthcare profession. Can you teach empathy in a medical school setting? Is there are there are there ways to to do that? And and do you have plans in that direction inside the CUNY School of Medicine? Yes, yes. I, I think we can teach empathy. Um, I think we can, you know, we can do it in a way that we can inform the curriculum by our own spirit experiences. We can teach um, health professionals to actively listen. The whole role of narrative medicine, which is basically writing down exactly what someone says as opposed to, you know, um, shortening. So, for instance, let me give you an example. Um, so, Mrs. So-and-so, Mrs. Smith, is a 65-year-old woman, African-American, who comes from the South Bronx and has a diagnosis of pancreatic cancer. Her children are now in Michigan and she's very scared. Versus the 65-year-old woman with pancreatic cancer in room 60. Yeah. Very different stories. So at the CUNY School of Medicine, we've embraced the role of narrative medicine. Lots of people have talked about narrative medicine, but they haven't talked about it in the way in which the patient informs the story. And hearing the unequal burdens and unheard voices of those people who are sometimes othered or stigmatized, mm -hmm. or we aren't used to hearing their stories. So we'll be working. We've got an outstanding um, uh, young um, faculty member who focuses on narrative. And so we'll be doing more of that. And I've got some exciting ideas that really engage, that potentially can engage the community uh, in this process of how we might think about telling stories um, in a very different way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I think, you know, you talk about othering somebody else, whether it's across gender lines or linguistic or national or ethnic, one of the things that happens when you other somebody is you you radically diminish your ability to perceive fear or vulnerability or anxiety. And, and, and all of those things get translated in the perception into something that's more aggressive and more dangerous. So fear becomes anger. Right, and anxiety becomes instability, and you know, and and that bleeds the empathy out of out of the exchange. Um, we and I and I say that because you know one of the things we talk about all the time uh, in relationship to the student body of the CUNY School of Medicine is that it is I mean, certainly the most diverse medical school in New York State, but nationally those diversity rankings are right up there. I think we have a higher percentage of African American students than any college that's not an HBCU, and we're number five in the country, at least last I checked. And I, and I say that now towards the end of our conversation, 
because I think I think the push for diversity um, is strengthened if it has a context, right? Like this is this is I mean obviously you want a diverse set of opportunities for people just from a question of fairness and a, a, a question of equity. But here we're actually talking about something very different. We're talking about remaking a medical profession by shoring up weaknesses that exist in the ability or the or, or at least the frequency with which people do things like empathize with patients or perceive pain across lines. So so all of which is to 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 invite you now at this stage in the conversation to talk about you know the, the diversity of the of the of the school and 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 why you think it's important. Well, you know, um, you know, I, I was struck by your comment about the othering and you know how we also people who are LGBT mm-hmm. do often are othered, and so there's work to be done there, and there's you know very active interest group here in regards to that. Um, you know, we are all human, mm-hmm. and we live in an increasingly aging and aging. I'm sorry, increasingly diversifying aging and female population. Um, But our health professionals do not reflect that. And they haven't reflected that for a number of, actually, our numbers of, particularly as it relates to African-American men, are at 1970s, 1960s level. That has a huge, huge impact on their communities uh, and on the population as to who receives care. So, you know, I'm not saying by any stretch of the imagination that you can only see, if you are a a Puerto Rican, you can only see a Puerto Rican doctor. What I am saying is that by having physicians uh, and PAs who are Puerto Ricans actually diversifies the class and helps other people who are in the health profession understand the context in which people live in. Um, By, you know, we are currently in a point in time in which more non-white children are being born than white children. We've got more non-white teenagers than we have white teenagers. The question, the fundamental question is, are our health care system, is higher education preparing for that change? It's going to require empathy. It's going to require actively listening. It's going to require us to do things differently. Now, the CUNY School of Medicine, one of the things that I, I am so exceedingly proud of is that we have always been MCAT-free. That's a major exam that people take to get into medical school. We have taken a holistic approach, taking people from the very earliest, you say, I want to be a doctor, and you're seventh, eighth grade, um, and you get into our school, which, by the way, my friend, it is. We are the most selective uh, medical school in New York State. Hmm. Um you come into our medical school, we do a, I mean, you come, we do a holistic process, see as whether or not we believe that you would fit into our curriculum, see, see um, you know, in many ways, um, what type of doctor you're going to be. We want to be doctors who serve the community. Um, and in seven years, you know, you, three years, you get an accelerated bachelor's, and in, in four years, you get your MD. Now, why is that important that you don't have the MCAT? The MCAT, just like the GRE and the SAT. These are the other standardized tests that you have to take to, to get into college or graduate school or law school. Exactly. We're questioning their very reason for their existence. Now, somebody may be benefiting from it, but I'll tell you, I, from my personal experience with a number of different people, people take that exam, that MCAT exam, one, two, three, four times, because the score is not great enough. It's not high enough, and they get their heads bumped each time. Mm-hmm. And then lots of people fall out. They no longer can become doctors, or they stop believing that they can become doctors. We bypass that barrier. And you know what? Our students become wonderful doctors. 
and I think about what have we lost as strictly um, considering that racial and ethnic minorities tend to do worse on these exams. Mm -hmm. Okay, and there's no data to suggest that their intelligence is less. Mm -hmm. These are social constructs that that are designed by a certain population that is not reflective of the general population. Mm -hmm. um, what have we lost and what could we have gained? Oh. Yeah, I you know I I think this is an important moment. To, you know, one of the literatures around standardized tests is a literature that's referred to as stereotype threat, and 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 you know there's lots of social experiments around stereotype threat, and you know a lot of times people talk about well could we design a test that is not culturally biased, but you know one of these really compelling uh, experiments that that I, I read about at one point was a, a, a set of tests like the MCATs or the SATs or you know any of these standardized tests was given to two different groups of young African Americans. And in one group, they said, we're going to give you this test and it doesn't matter. We're just trying to see if it's a good test. So do your best, but it, this isn't important. Um, sorry, it was a group of mixed African American and, and, and white students. Other group same demographic, same age, they gave the same test and said, we're going to give you this test and we're going to use it to determine what colleges you get into and what scholarships you might have. Um, and, and not surprisingly, in that group, African-American students did markedly worse than the white students. While in the, in the group where they said the test um, didn't count for anything, there was almost no difference in their scores. And the, and the explanation was, it's not the content of the test. It's the idea that you're going to go into a room and sit down and with the whole burden in some cases of, you know, am I going to be the one to change the trajectory of my family by getting an education and making sure my, my children get an education? That burden sits on the shoulders of the African-American students. And so it, it, it it's a tremendously important thing to 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 figure out how we can be rigorous in evaluating our students, make sure that when they graduate they're no less prepared than 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 any student in any other medical school, but not knock them out um, in a in a in a test that activates the stereotypes um, that that then threaten their their performance. Well, and you're exactly right. I mean, first of all, expectations matter. Mm-hmm. Um, my goal is to say to my, you know, 500 plus students, just like I say to my kids, mm -hmm. you know, I believe in you. And because I believe in you, you should believe in yourself as well. Mm -hmm. And that's why we refer to our students as healers and leaders. Yeah. And yeah. I, you know, with that being said, this holistic, um, you know, admissions process becomes really very important mm -hmm. in, about, you know, who becomes a doctor. Patients don't walk in and say, did my doctor get this score on the MCAT or this score in the USMLE? Mm -hmm. Or do they say, my doctor's a good doctor, and this is why they're a good doctor, because they actually listen to me. Right, right. right? And so those are things, that, and that, that's part of the reason why, you know, we, we're a professional school. Yeah. And so we also need to make certain they're going to go out into a public that's going to be able to lay hands and heal. We need to make certain that we're rigorous in that approach. Um, but, you know... We can do better in making certain that doctors are reflective. We are number five in the country. Right. Um, and this school is a national treasure. Yeah. No ifs, ands, or buts. I, I, I have the best dean job in the country. That, um, that sounds like a really good place to put a, put a punctuation mark uh, on this interview. Let me say before we break, if you are listening and you've got a young a son or a daughter or you're a, a young person thinking about whether or not medicine is for you what 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 dr green is saying is that that the cuny school of medicine will take its time to look at all aspects of who you are and 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 what you can be um and and so don't you be the one that says um medicine is not for me you know this is an opportunity for for an institution to take a 360 degree look at 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 who you are, and if you want medicine to be in your future, you should take a really close look at us. Um, thank you for listening to From City to the World. I want to 
especially thank our guest, Dr. Carmen Renee Green, um, whose background and vision poise her to take the CUNY School of Medicine to 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 new heights and, and to really, as she said earlier, make it the most important medical school in the country. Dr. Green, I want to give you just a second to uh to, to put in any last thoughts you wanna you wanna um lay down before we wrap up the show. We I thank you so much for inviting us. Uh, we are in the business of making great doctors. We will continue to do that and we're excited. I'm excited to be um, in the heart of Harlem. Fantastic. Well, um, I, I believe that as Harlem gets to know you a little bit better, they'll be excited for, you, for that you're here as well. The show is produced by Angela Harden and yours truly, Vince Boudreau. And I'm your host, Vince Boudreau, the president of the City College of New York, saying once again, thank you so much to Dr. Carmen Green and hope you'll join us again for the next edition of From City to the World. Thank you, everybody. Okay.